Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord God, we are grateful, as always, to come before your word with uh, the readiness we each need, heart, mind, soul, we'd ask that you would touch us where we need to be touched. In your son's name, amen. I was in uh, Micah, not Jeremiah, when I was ended up, for some reason, I still can't spot why I started thinking a certain thing. Um, years ago, I, I know I preached a number of times on how faith gets into the wrong definitional place and we have all sorts of ways of telling us to be busy about faith, and it's the wrong thing. This week I was talking to Nick Rozier about it and about a sermon he wanted to preach at some point about how the different errors of faith, not the content of faith, but the errors of how we view faith, puts you in the wrong position. So it may have been that, but I was reading in Micah 3, and, and this thought came to the front of my mind. It wasn't when I was, I was just reading, and... And yeah, I could have, maybe I had hammered into Micah 3 if I would tried, but I, I didn't want to do that. So I went looking for another passage, where because the thought seemed to be so um, important. We live in a, a uh, wicked age. We are at the end of our civilization. Maybe God will be merciful to us and will be carried on for time to come, but... Uh, like all peoples who don't believe in the Lord, they slowly circle the drain. They end up collapsing morally. And it's not, it happened to everybody. It's not like we're strange. It seems a little embarrassing because we are, you know, good Protestant, um, post-enlightenment, uh, you know, George Washington and stuff. But they, the Jews, had, you know, Moses and stuff, Abraham and stuff. We know the circumstance that unbelief brings. We know the sin that it engenders. We also know the quality of life that develops. And some of us in various discussions have expressed the concern about where will our life be? We live in a nice town comparatively. Um, what do we what do we anticipate? What are our kids, grandkids, going to grow up living in? What state? It can get pretty bad. Right here at the top of the page, Jeremiah 15.1, Then the Lord said to me, It's the Lord speaking, Yahweh, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. Jumping forward five verses. You have rejected me, says the Lord. You keep going backward. So I stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. There's another part, part of this I skipped over. It's basically the people respond to God. Well, where shall we go? And he basically says, go to hell. Not in those terms. 
He says, those of you who are set up for pestilence, why don't you go to pestilence? Those of you who are set up for the sword, why don't you go to the sword? It's not going to be good. God was not pleased. He was ticked. We see an unbelieving world around us. We know that the evangelical body of believers trying to represent Jesus Christ and the gospel in this world are up against it. Too easy for us to think of finding some way to trick the nation in becoming a Christian nation again. But in the back of your mind, you're wondering whether that's going to come off. But there is, in this realization that sin doesn't just have for each individual's life, but in the culture's life, a collapse of all goods that you see around you. There's a horror to it. So, when we know, as Christians, so we're, not, we're, not, we're not sacramentalists, we don't believe that I can shake the magic chicken and make people better in the sight of our God. I can't go kill an ox up here in the chancel knowing that the blood flowing down the steps would atone for your sins. You have got to believe. It's sola fide, right? Faith alone. And since we're into faith alone, this sola fide aspect, we're looking at this problem. We're standing in the middle of a broken society with the church not being entirely what the church ought to be. And that brokenness has to be addressed with belief. Okay, you, you, you went to Sunday school enough to realize they have to believe in Jesus. You've seen all sorts of paths where people were taking you know, tricky ways to get little kids to believe in Jesus or emotional pleas from the pulpit while somebody was playing just as I am on an organ long enough that you will be emotionally overwhelmed and down forward you would come because belief, fide, faith, is what God needs, God wants. And we're looking at this in Jeremiah and going, this is what was happening in Jeremiah's day. And God, fed up. I am tired of relenting. I am tired of being merciful. We sometimes think that God is not somebody. We think, because we're Platonists, that if God is merciful, he will never stop being merciful. But he's not a Platonic form. He is someone named Yahweh who got tired of being merciful because they would not turn. They kept cheapening their belief and their return to him. And Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet for a reason. You know, he's saying, what, what's going on? He's saying right in the middle of a bad, bad time. So what do we do? We know our message. Faith, belief, the gospel. We know that the answer is, you know, we're trying to serve this gain, need for the gain of belief, but at some point that rug, just like for God, if it's pulled out from under God, in terms of the people ever believing, and he goes, okay, done, uh, I'm out of here. But, and you're running around going, but, but no, we could get them to believe.
There are basically, as I was thinking about this issue of faith, belief, and our working towards it, um, I saw places that we can misconstrue what we're about. Because one of the natural things in evangelical thought is because it's evangelical, we are not looking at faith as the thing that is believed. We're looking at the faith as the growing thing, the, the thing that getting more people to believe, getting the church to respond, the people to respond in a big way. We want to have big events that reach people in a big way, at a big distance, send men, either by a single event or by many people going out into the lost world, around the world, the tribes and to foreign countries and reaching, reaching those people. Because we believe this grave need for belief is answered and only answered when they believe. And that feeling that nags at us, that as we see that unbelief, no matter when we send, how long we send, how much we send, we've been preaching the gospel for a long time, folks. People at Wycliffe have been going through years of privation and loss to go to some tribe of 17 people that all have their own language. And that missionary will spend 20 years developing a language translating then an alphabet, a printable language, that they can print up the Gospel of John in that language, 20 years. And finally, for those 17 people, there'll be the Gospel of John, and they still won't believe. Some will. You rejoice in those that do. You say, haven't we been serving this end for a long time? Well, Jeremiah was up there too. He's going, I've been, I've been prophesying, and God's saying, I'm done, I'm out of here. What degree of national repentance would you have to see? You see, you see the systems of people's self-reward, their sexuality, or their money, or their power, all collapsing around them right about now. It's almost satisfying to watch the judgment of God fall on various groups and people. But it's not responding, nobody's responding with, you know, maybe I better go find Jesus. Some, some group was trying to ban the phrase, Jesus is the answer, because that would make people feel bad. You wouldn't be allowed to say, Jesus is the answer. Or, you need Jesus. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, he needs the Lord, man. People in power really need the Lord. What degree would we have to see to, to, to solve this problem? How many of them do we have to get to believe? Well, you know that I'm, I'm a utilitarian. And I, my, my views of the expansion of the kingdom of God in numbers is not real high. Because I think the Lord says that it's not going to be. Narrow is the way that leads to life and those that find it are few. But those few that find it is wonderful salvation. But it makes those people who are believing, knowing that it's belief, really concerned about the absence of belief. And they think the question is only answered by an impossibility. <coughs> Reaching the world for Jesus Christ. 
Now, you might differ with me on your eschatology, and I, I have a problem with that. It's not one of those things we have you to sign on to around here. <coughs> but if you begin to realize that, you begin to serve a bit in the kingdom, you begin to realize, you know, here we are in a small town. We're an active church. There are other good churches in town that are trying to reach the lost for Jesus Christ. It seems that any believer I know, if someone asked, what must I do to be saved, would tell somebody what they need to be saved. But they're not asking. So what, where do we go here? If we cannot, if we cannot reach this crisis of unbelief, what can we do? I was thinking of it, well, I was shopping for tickets for my lovely wife. There is a particular artist who she heard on the radio was going to be in Spokompton for a number of months from now. So I said, well, I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to take her. So I got online, Tickets West, I guess. Already, no seats available on the floor. So what do you do when there are no seats available on the floor? I was willing to spend that money to get her down, but no, nothing available. You have to say, are there seats in the balcony? And lo and behold, there were seats in the balcony. He said, what does this have to do with anything? I just wanted to tell you the story. <laughs> no, the phrase, are there seats in the balcony, when you realize that what your task, when this problem of unbelief, where you know the world is going to Hades in a handbasket, the answer is belief, and they're not going to believe. The unbelief just gets worse. All the hope and prayer for revival, you know. And then you find, think that you're in the middle of a revival, and the head of the revival runs off of the organist. In the middle of a church that's affecting the town in a big way, and the pastor, once again, runs off of the organist. They're always running off of the organist. So where's the seats in the balcony? What's the belief? Where do we go when we can't get the world to bow to Jesus Christ? What satisfies us? One of the basic things that people who work in the kingdom like to do if they can't get the world to believe is get the world to believe them or get a portion, a large enough portion to gratify their interests and belief to believe them. So your heart is really big when you try to reach the world for Christ. When you can't find the world is being reached for Christ, you say, I'll take a seat in the balcony and I'll satisfy myself with the religious gains of having a lot of people believe me. Now, why don't you? That's why. That's why I've called you here this morning to check. Why don't you believe me? That's a really big temptation. That's a real big place that I can go with faith, with belief. We think we're engendering, we're handling the belief question. To have the world believe the same thing that you do is one thing. To have them believe distinctly you. One of the false teachers in the uh, book of Acts that Paul warns the Ephesian elders about he says, out of your very midst will rise men to seek, to draw away disciples after themselves. Out of the elders that Paul had trained in Ephesus, 
Some were going to rise to lead disciples away after themselves. Not that they became non-Christians. Yeah, one of the dangers of a small church like this, because um, we, 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 very easy for us to think of the dangers of big churches like others. But what about the dangers of small churches like this? That had no organization, barely any, just sort of ad hoc. You don't want them to be circumstances where the ego of the pastor, and it's considerable, uh, is being rewarded by able, being able to draw people away after themselves. There's not going to be a lot of number of people. Just enough to, belief enough, his idea of sola fide is how many people believe only me. You can see one of the basic things that we've tried to do here in the congregation is, as you know, if you come regularly, no one ever checked what you believe. You have to please God with your beliefs. You don't have to please us with your belief. You have to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It should change you. It should be evident that it has changed you. And you could be reformed, and you could be charismatic, and you could be, I don't know, even Baptist. And show up here. And your doctrines might not match mine on any point, but we want it. It doesn't matter to mu so much that you agree with us or whatever the base of agreement would be. I, I don't know if I could figure it out. If they asked us, let's make a statement of faith of what we believe. I said, where do we begin? I know what I believe. I have no idea what people who have come to this church the longest believe. Other than they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They have believed the gospel. They might have a vastly different view of end times. A vastly different view of the gifts of the Spirit. A vastly different view of church order. But why is that there? Because the temptation is there in the secondary. When you abandon, you might say, reach the world for Jesus with Wycliffe or Campus Crusade. Or whatever it is that's got this worldwide revival mentality you suddenly become a realist you say you know I'm just going to be satisfied with getting people to believe me because that will feel actually pretty big and satisfied if I'm trying to measure it against the whole world it's one thing but if I just you know if I could get a thousand people to believe what I think that's a good sola fide Now, the last thing, I, it's a temptation. I, I'm not saying that a person couldn't be a good person and struggle with that temptation or be a good person and, and struggle with the need for revival or even be working for the need for revival. But at some point, even if you believe in revival, you know that some points in some nations, God does not put up with it any longer. On the last day, it's going to be everybody out of the pool. It doesn't matter where you are and how many more minutes it would take you to come to belief because God is bringing the world to an end. He gets weary of relenting at some point. What I want you to be most concerned with is what the rest of this passage seems to be about. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, 
nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. So let it be, O Lord, if I have not entreated thee for their good, if I have not pleaded with thee on behalf of the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress, can one break iron, iron from the north, and bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I will make you serve your enemies in a land which you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled which shall burn forever. That first part is Jeremiah talking about his circumstance. Coming out of this judgment of God in the first part of the chapter, which I skipped over a lot of the verses of what it was like. And he basically says, I'm, I'm cut off from the other forms. The people are not believing. And anybody is, nobody is believing me. He didn't have the option of the two other sola fide tasks that we can be about. When you say sola fide, do you try to create the church Catholic? Or do you try to create the true church around what you've discovered is true? <laughs> Smaller group. The whole kingdom of God, or just your, of course, most correct share of it. Jeremiah has neither of those. People don't like him. I haven't lent to people, I haven't borrowed from people, and yet, they still hate me. Both sides of that deal I haven't done to them. God has, he is, he's pleaded with God for their good. And God still says, I'm going to make you serve your enemies. So verse 15, is where Jeremiah gets. I want to encourage you to get there. Even if you can turn around and benefit the church Catholic, even if you could turn around and benefit your local body in such a way that what things you shared were understood and agreed with, even if you need to get driven sort of back to where sola fide is actually you can, you can claim it. You can do it. You don't have to wait till people believe you. You don't have to wait till you become a charming enough Bible teacher that people respond to you. What else is left? O oh Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In thy forbearance take me not away. Know that for thy sake I bear reproach. This is the central verse, verse 16. Thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord, God of hosts. Where Jeremiah is left, you should be left. When you say sola fide, you're not chanting the, the war cry of the church Catholic. You're not chanting the war cry of this particular body with this particular church culture. We're into sola fide. You're saying, I believe. Only I believe. I have, Lord, you know me. You know who I am. You know what I have done. I have found your word. I have eaten your word. Your words are a joy and a delight to me, and I am called by your name. You saying that before God, you being the, the place where sola fide rests. 
Is your, and this is one of the, the reason I brought up those other two, couldn't I just go on to this and say, you should believe? Well, yeah. And we all kind of knew that. But we sometimes hide our inability to have that belief be total and concrete when those other things are floating around for us to fog what it is we're doing in, in our belief systems. In other words, knowing that the church, with its orthodox truth and the Bible carried through the ages, oh, it looked like a Russian poster, you know, everybody going down with hammers and sickles, and we sort of feel that we are part of this mighty thread. What's that hymn? Um, For All the Saints, right? Triumphal music. We're the martyrs, the saints, the fathers of the church, the great writers. We even say as Protestant saint so-and-so, saint so-and-so. We know that the, the aroma of that kingdom of belief trying to reach, and more, a lot of people have doctrines that believe, either evangelistically or just theologically, that the whole world is theirs to reach. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is there for every man, but I don't believe they're going to be reached by it. We can lose track of faith alone for you alone. Where you stop and you don't, you don't ever say, I found his words, I ate his words, I delighted and it became a joy to me, and I'm called by the name of Jesus Christ. And have that satisfy everything about sola fide that you want to have satisfied. That's, uh, that's where you need to get. Because you can get tripped up in your religion by having the kingdom of God having to be somehow juggled in your emotions. Or the kingdom of your local, your particular theology or camp or church following your particular teachers. That can place your faith someplace. It really is, it's iffy whether it's going to last. You, the, the sola fide is always about you. We were reading in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters this week at Pike Night, where Screwtape comments that, you know, nations don't get saved. Only individuals are saved or damned. That's really what, when you say sola fide, it's sola fide of you and yours to God between you and him. And the concern, Jeremiah says, is I did not sit in the company of the merrymakers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because thy hand was upon me, for thou hast filled me with indignation. We do have a reaction when you believe, really you believe. When you stand before the word of God and eat it and rejoice in it and know it cost you, but this is what you have. You've been called by the name. You've been called by the name of God. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Wilt thou be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Remember Jeremiah was realizing his belief alone was really all he could count on. His belief alone. Faith alone. Was Jeremiah's clinging to God. Because nothing else was turning to God. Nothing else. 
Well, we might be in a time where there's more advancements for the kingdom. We might live in a time where the church might grow. Your church might grow. The larger, larger body of believers in the world might grow. But there are other times when it doesn't. Whether it's growing or whether it's not growing, the only point of real, definite, I can claim it as a unilateral joy, is whether the faith exists in you. Whether you find the word of God to be a joy and a delight. You can control that arena of a belief. I don't have, I, 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 when I think about someone else's belief, I can come up with every apologetic argument. I can be as winsome as you, you know, can imagine me be. Uh, invite people over to your hospitality ministry and I can do all sorts of things and there's this inseparable gap between the word of God and that other person's will. He might believe, he might not. You, on the other hand, have absolute control over you. You can believe. If there isn't belief in you, if there isn't adequate you going, yeah, I, do I? If I suddenly realize in the middle of this sermon that I don't believe, would I immediately? Or would you go, hmm, I got some, some breathing room here. I didn't know I didn't believe. This is all about you. This is all about your salvation. And D Jeremiah is concerned that this too was going to dry up. The nation had dried up. The view of the prophet of God, he did not have followers. He's left with himself in his own belief, and then he wonders, is it going to dry up? And God comes back in the next verse. God's voice then comes on. Therefore, set, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. You shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I'll make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. God steps up. That, that's the point of negotiation. The point of faith is a God who gives grace to the faithful. At the point the faith is unquestioningly creatable. You can create that faith. You know whether you believe it or not. If you don't believe it, God help you. But if you do believe it, the grace of God has been offered to you. We don't have to wait for the nation to get saved. We don't have to wait for a bigger church to happen. So many people depend on these other faiths coming along to make their faith. It's your faith immediately in you that has an immediate response to God. It's not like a dry riverbed. It's not a seasonal creek. It's something that is always there and you are given what is precious and, those, and you will convince them but they will not you convince you. They will come against you, but you will be sustained. It's a strong place. There will come a time if you actually believe, if you have found sola fide where it belongs, your faith alone with your faith. 
God's promises being met to you, not to us, to you. Your ministry to others then is encouraged by real change in you. That's where salvation exists. That's where the faith should be found. That's where the faith is the example to others. It's not how much each of us here in this room agree about the gospel. It's not our agreement that makes it true. Don't look around and find that you need all these people agreeing with you to believe. Do you need me? Because I, you know, I'm in the business. Um, I'm a professional. Do you need somebody who thinks about it all the time, believing it, so that you can, I think I could believe that, he believes it. And he has a jacket. These are vestments. The Protestant vestments. Do you need that? You shouldn't. It is your God. It is your life. It was your sins. But if you do, if you do find the soul of Fide where the soul of Fide belongs, where the soul of Fide is completely up to you and God. You and God are to be in on this. This is the deal he's willing to make. He was willing to make it with the nation, but they can't be brought to believe. Believe. The, the idea of a particular group believing is a little dicey because it might be true, it might be false, it might just be serving the pastor's own ego. But you and him, you could be there going, I find your word precious. I delight in it. Don't deprive me. And he says, I don't. I will give you the strength to be what you are supposed to be. And then people will come to you. They will humble, will war against you. You'll be made a wall of bronze because they're going to come against you, but others are going to come to you and you not to them. You will get believed. There's the glory of being believed in preaching the gospel, but it won't be because there's glory in being believed. That's the danger. There are, there are dicey, manipulative joys of being on the winning team. Win the world for Jesus because you could have faith if only you were on the winning team. If the Muslims were ahead of us, you'd be a little wobbly. What if the Buddhists just caught up with us all of a sudden? And boom! There's a lot of Buddhists out there. A lot of Hindus. What if the Mormons... And they got those pointy... We got a steeple, but they got a steeple on every single one. We have churches meeting in gymnasiums and storefronts. They have a steeple on every single building. What if they started winning? Would that wobble you? There's joys in being believed. There's joys in seeing the work of the kingdom go out in foreign nations, in this country, everywhere it's needed. There's joy in that. But if you don't have the sola fide in you, that's going to be where your joy has to be. And when it gets into a time where the church is under persecution and people are falling away and kids are turning away from the faith of their parents and all sorts of other things, where are you going to be? Because you don't have sola fide of yourself. Not the doctrine of sola fide. Not that you're the, I, 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 I believe young people get tattoos of things they care about these days. So you could, uh, I have a friend, I think he has sola fide tattooed on his arm, along with some other solas, I think. Um, now it's not that we stand for this doctrine, it's that you believe the God. Do you believe the God? 
This God, with his prophets, with his apostles, with his son, representing himself on earth, and you found the words, you found these, and you, what did you do? Bought one, carried it around, what? No, you ate it, and you rejoiced in it, you delighted in it. You have to believe. That's where belief has to be. And the greatest thing, I think, is that you are called by the name of God. Don't let you being called by the name of God be using the name of the Lord in vain. If they were to call you a Christian, don't let that be a tragic misuse of the term. You should be thrilled that you're called by the name of God. He is one of Yahweh's people. She is one of Jesus Christ's followers. When the New Testament uh, saints got beaten, tortured, it says they rejoiced that they were worthy to be worthy enough to be able to suffer for the name. The name. You've been called by it. This is where the faith is in you. Not in this church. This is where the faith is. It's in your response to God's message to man. You're one of those. You're one of those women. You're one of those men. And you either bowed the knee and rejoiced or you didn't. So let's build a church body that works because everyone stands in the grace of God because they stand in the faith that they've encountered. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. For your mercies and thank you for calling us to believe in your son's name amen